This is James Cooper with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Much of our early planted corn is moving along quickly, and a fair share of it is between the blister and soft dose date, or around R1 to R4. This means we are just a few weeks away from black layer or full maturity. So, now is a good time to talk about corn ear rots. There's a lot of them, and it can be hard to tell the difference. I don't expect ear rots to be a major concern this year considering the weather, but some ear rots like wet ears, and some prefer dry ears. The most common one, diploidia ear rot, is favored by human and wet weather during silking. This ear rot is characterized by white fungus growing between the kernels and starting at the base of the ear. It can often completely overtake the inner kernels and turn the entire ear a grayish brown. This fungus tends to be worse in no-till or continuous cornfields. Fortunately, this rot is not associated with any mitotoxin, but it does reduce grain quality. However, the two similar ear rots of Fasarium and Gabriella can create a potentially harmful mitotoxin. Both are favored by human conditions, but occur in all types of weather. Insects creating holes within the ear are common vectors for the diseases. The mitotoxins, specifically vomitoxin, has a threshold of one part per million for human consumption. But since most U.S. corn is for animals, thresholds are often between 5 to 30 parts per million. Swine and horses are sensitive to vomitoxin, while cattle and sheep are more resistant. The two ear rots look very different though. Gabriella looks more like diploidia, but is more common at the ear tip. Vasarium infects kernels with white or peak fungus that can occur randomly throughout the ear. It is important to note that Gabriella and Fasarium don't always create vomitoxins, but they are capable of it. For the colorful funguses, we have Penicillum, Trichodermia, and Aspergillus. The three are fairly different from each other. Trichodermia is often associated with kernels sprouting in the ear. Penicillum is a bright blue-green and often on the ear tip. Aspergillus is different from all the others and is more common in dry years after pollination. Aspergillus is also capable of producing a mitotoxin known as alpha-toxin, which is toxic and carcinogenic. We've definitely had more heat this year, and some places have been very dry, which could favor this ear rot. The concern doesn't end with harvest either. Nearly all these ear rots can continue to grow in the bin with high moisture. Penicillin is especially problematic. Corn stored long-term needs to be dried below 13% moisture. So yes, there's a lot of various ear rots, but for some, it's important to know the difference. Some, like Diploidia, will only decrease green quality, while some, like Vasarian aspergillus, can create mitotoxins, which can lead to a serious product dosage or livestock feeding issues. If you find ear rots in your cornfield and need them identified, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat Extension District. Fertilizer ratios indicate the percent of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium by weight in a particular fertilizer. Ratios are always given as the percent nitrogen, also called N, phosphorus, also known as P, followed by potassium, or K. For example, a 10-10-20 fertilizer contains 10% nitrogen, 10% phosphorus, and 20% potassium. Pulling out our producer calculator, 
This means that 100 pounds of this fertilizer will actually contain 10 pounds of nitrogen, 10 pounds of phosphorus, and 20 pounds of potassium. Nitrogen, or N, is critical for the maximum growth of grasses and associated with the plant's dark green color. Urea is the most common source in our area. It's only 46% nitrogen. Applying 100 pounds of urea to an acre will supply 46 pounds of N. Adequate phosphorus, or P, is crucial for stem strength and root growth. A soil test is necessary to determine how much P is needed. Diammonium phosphate, also known as DAP, can be applied directly to a pasture. Since DAP has a ratio of 1846-0, applying 100 pounds supplies 46 pounds of P per acre, and to complicate fertilizer rate calculations, this same 100 pounds will also supply 18 pounds of nitrogen. Potassium, or K, is vital for disease resistance and winter hardiness. A soil test is needed to determine K requirements. Muriate of potash, commonly known as potash, has a ratio of 0060, so applying 100 pounds of potash supplies about 60 pounds of K per acre. Let's work through an example of phosphorus. Results are presented from K-State Soil Labs in parts per million, abbreviated as PPM. A soil test reveals there's 2 ppm in a fescue pasture, and optimum is 20 ppm. We use an equivalency factor to get that ppm converted to actual phosphorus, generalized as P2O5. Converting our known 2 ppm to actual p per acre, we find that an additional 55 pounds of actual phosphorus is needed in the soil. In reality, the fertilizer available is not pure P though. So we use DAP at 46%. 55 pounds divided by 46% is 120 pounds. So we have to apply at least 120 pounds of DAP to satisfy the phosphorus requirement for fescue. Since we have applied 120 pounds of DAP, we have to account for the 18% nitrogen in that as it will impact our urea rate. 18% of 120 pounds is 21.5 pounds of N to the acre. We have to subtract this amount from the actual nitrogen needed. These concepts and common lingo can make rate calculations confusing. Feel free to give me a call to discuss options at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, natural resource and diversified ag agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the agriculture and natural resource agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. There are three different types of bees in a honeybee hive, worker, drone, and queen. Each has its own important roles and performs specific duties in a bee colony. The queen bee can be recognized by her abdomen, which is usually smooth and elongated, extending well beyond her folded wings. Her function in the hive is one of production. She is normally the only reproductive female in the colony. Egg laying begins in early spring, initiated when the first fresh pollen is brought home by the worker bees. Egg production will continue until fall or as long as pollen is available. 
Worker bees are the smallest of the bee castes, but are by far the most numerous. All workers are female and normally incapable of reproduction. They are unable to mate, but in a hopelessly queenless colony, workers may begin to lay unfertilized eggs, which develop into drones. Workers do all of the necessary tasks within a colony, including they secrete the wax used in the hive and form it into honeycombs. They forage for all the nectar and pollen brought into the hive and transform the nectar into honey. They produce royal jelly to feed to the queen and young larvae. They also tend to the needs of the larvae and queens. They cap the cells of mature larvae for pupation and remove debris and dead bees from the hive. Worker bees defend the hive against intruders and maintain optimal conditions by heating, cooling, and ventilating the hive. Workers have well-developed compound eyes on the sides of their heads and three simple eyes at the vertex. Their tongue is well-developed and elongated for taking up nectar from flowers. Drone bees are male honeybees. The only function of a drone is to fertilize a young queen bee. They are visibly larger and stouter than worker bees. They possess large distinctive eyes that meet on the top of their heads and have antennae slightly longer than the worker or queen bees. Their mouth parts are generally reduced. Drones develop from unfertilized eggs and drone cells are visibly larger than those of worker bees. Drones do not tend the brood, produce wax, or collect pollen or nectar. They will feed themselves directly from honey cells in the hive or bake food from the worker bees. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave and with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of The Hort Report. Mushrooms are a love-it or hate-it vegetable, but if you love them, you might be able to grow your own at home. You can go the substrate route or the log route, and each has its pros and cons. Growing mushroom in logs requires more management, but you will get more mushrooms over a longer period of time. Substrate growing can get you mushrooms in as little as one week, but is usually a one-and-done. You can buy pre-made kits from various producers if you don't want to try the log production method or creating your own substrate. Substrates could include sawdust, grain holes, straw, compost, or coffee grounds. The substrate you choose will depend on the mushrooms you want to grow, and if you are growing any mushroom other than oysters, you will need to sterilize the substrate using a pressure cooker or steamer. Once the spawn of the fungus is added to the substrate, keep temperatures between 55 and 75 degrees and humidity at 80% or higher until the mushrooms begin forming. For log growing, the species of log you will use will also depend on the specific mushroom. In all cases, however, the logs must be from deciduous trees and not evergreens. Cut the logs when the tree is dormant and inoculate with the spawn two to three weeks after cutting. Drill logs in a diamond pattern six inches apart, plug the spawn, and use a mallet to drive the plugs into the holes. 
Waxing the holes after inoculating will hold in the moisture. Keep out of direct sunlight, soaking the logs for a few hours every two weeks. Aim for somewhere between 45 and 60% moisture in the logs. After a 6 to 9 month incubation period, you can expect 5 to 6 years of production off of an average log with fruiting periods in the spring and the fall. The most common cultivated mushrooms are shiitakes, oysters, reishis, and lion's manes. Overall, most mushrooms are going to do best in oak logs, but oysters will also grow in hackberry or cottonwood logs. Some people will go out looking for mushrooms in the wild. This is known as foraging. Morels, chanterelles, and chicken of the woods will be easiest to find growing out in the wild, but unfortunately these culinary mushrooms will not successfully grow either using the substrate or the log method. You will have to find these growing near recently downed trees or at the base of hackberry or elms. If you are able to find morels, don't take more than you need because morel patches are known to disappear from over-harvesting. One rule of selling mushrooms commercially is that any gathered mushrooms must be properly identified by a certified identifier. However, cultivated mushrooms do not have this requirement. If you are interested in selling foraged mushrooms, KSU offers at least one class on mushroom identification every year. Contact your extension office for more info. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.